Welcome to the Human Theatre, a safe space teemed with an abundance of exploration about what it means to be a human in this world. Optimal health is your birthright and should not be a luxury. Knowing how your body works and understanding everything that relates to your human experience comes with the package. My name is Kelsey Buchholter, and I am here to dive deep into all things mental and physical health, longevity, nutrition, human consciousness, creativity, and more. Join me in normalizing the concept of what it means to be a human and the importance of being you. Enjoy the show. Hello humans, my name is Kelsey. I am a singer-songwriter, actor, dancer, nutrition advisor, health coach, and your host. And welcome to the 55th show housed in the Human Theatre. Eating disorders, recovery, food addiction, addiction. These are complex terms that evoke complex conversations, and rightly so. And if you have ever experienced or know of anyone who has experienced any of these phenomena, you need to listen to this episode. I have been in the eating disorder and addiction recovery space on online, social media, for quite a while. And I'm the first person to tell you that it's really ambiguous, sometimes messy, empowering, and as you will learn today, often lacks nuance. And that can be very harmful. And this is why I am so excited for you to hear what Dr. David Wiss has to say and learn about the very important work that he is doing, including an app called Wise Mind Nutrition. This is your sign to go and check it out and listen to this episode to learn more. Dr. David Wiss grew up in Los Angeles, where he received his bachelor's in social science from the University of Southern California. Having developed an interest in nutrition, David enrolled at California State University, Northridge, where he earned a Master of Science in Nutrition, Dietetics, and Food Science. This led to a dietetic internship at the University of California, Los Angeles Medical Center, where he received specialized training in their eating disorders unit. This experience sparked a deep interest in the role of nutrition as a part of mental health recovery. David became a registered dietitian nutritionist, RDN, in 2013 and founded Nutrition in Recovery, a group practice of RDNs specializing in the treatment of eating and substance use disorders. During this time, David developed a specialized nutrition curriculum that has been incorporated at more than 50 addiction treatment centers in Southern California and worldwide. In 2017, David matriculated at UCLA's Fielding School of Public Health in the Community Health Sciences Department with a minor in health psychology. He earned his Doctor of Philosophy degree, PhD, in 2022 by investigating the links between adverse childhood experiences and various mental health outcomes among socially disadvantaged men. During his doctoral training, Dr. Wiss published multiple peer-reviewed manuscripts in the field of food addiction, eating disorders, substance use disorders, depression, trauma, and childhood sexual abuse. These papers have been published in high-impact journals such as Appetite, the Journal of the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, Frontiers in Psychiatry, Public Health Nutrition, Nutrients, Eating and Weight Disorders, and others. In addition, he has contributed multiple book chapters on topics such as binge eating and dietary restraint. Dr. Wiss has received additional training from the Institute of Functional Medicine, AFMCP, and Psychiatry Redefined, Depression Intensive. David and I go deep into so many important topics pertaining to mental health, nutrition, his new app, Wise Mind Nutrition, challenging the mainstream eating disorder recovery narratives and conceptualizations, and so much more. Share this far and wide, especially to anyone who would benefit from hearing this. I do want to disclose that the content shared on this show is for educational and informational purposes only, and should not be taken as medical advice. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed medical practitioner. 
Stay tuned until the end for details about special discounts that I have for you. And without further ado, here's my chat with the highly acclaimed Dr. David Wiss. Dr. David Wiss, welcome to the Human Theatre Podcast. Thank you so much for having me today. It is an absolute honor. Where in the world are you speaking to us from? Yes, I am in West Los Angeles, near the 10 and the 405 freeway, and I live in an area called Century City. Oh my gosh, there's literally a Century City in Cape Town. Okay. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's so cool. Um, well, I would love to begin with your backstory um, and what brought you to where you are today. So much there. Um, <laughs> I'll give you the briefest version. I am from this part of the world, and I grew up trying to find my way just like everyone else. And I think it's safe to say that nutrition was a uh, second career for me, not a um, by design intentional path. Uh, it sort of chose me in some ways, but I, I definitely... Um, identify with counterculture and just have always been someone to question prevailing narratives. I've always been someone that um, wants to go deep. And, you know, that played out in my um, late teens, early 20s uh, with some music culture, rave culture, counterculture, um, which really, I think, I don't know. I think it's an important part of my story. I do because my my mom was involved in in the hippie movement in Southern California, and I kind of grew up with a revolutionary spirit. I did, and I think that um, I think that's important for me because in my career, I've I've always been one to um, try to incite a revolution. Uh, uh, I, I like change. I like uh, evolution and I like growth. So um, yeah, I had some health challenges in my early 20s and I did uh, find a healing path with nutrition and spirituality and, and movement and sunlight and sleep and water. And it did have a profound impact on my own mental health. And I, I, I made uh, a lot of progress in a short amount of time with uh, recovery, and it really opened doors for me to uh, think about where I could fit in in the world. You know, I think most people would agree if you can find something to do that you're passionate about, and then it's and it helps people, and you can generate revenue and make a career, like do that. Yeah. So that's kind of how it all happened for me. I got the call in my mid 20s to change my trajectory. And I started with, you know, a couple classes and then momentum. And then, you know, I went to graduate school, became a dietitian, uh, learned about nutrition in uh, classic settings like a hospital, but also started to ask questions about nutrition and brain health. Um, I was always interested in drug addiction and food addiction and then eating disorders and now, you know, more recently thinking about nutrition as it relates to and anxiety. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I've been in practice for 11 years. Uh, I've, I've spent over 10,000 hours working one-on-one -on -one with people and trying to be a, um, um, a voice for uh, growth and evolution at the individual level and at the population level. My PhD is in public health. So, it was a different experience because I'm used to thinking about people, you know, one-on-one, -on -one, I work with people. And then, you know, when I got my doctorate, I started to learn about populations, groups, right? To start thinking on larger scale. So um, yeah, I bring in my clinical experience with my training in research and uh, health psychology. And uh, I love working at this intersection I'm at an intersectional space, bringing in, you know, biology and, and clinical stuff. I do functional medicine and then bringing in, you know, larger contextual factors like weight stigma and, you know, restrained eating and the psychology of it all. And 
really trying to um, have some stimulating conversations at the intersection of nutrition and mental health. And that's why I built the Wise Mind Nutrition app. Which we are all, we're going to get into all of these topics. I'm so excited. But I think if they were a perfect like specialist, physician, coach that I wish that I could go to, I think it would be you. Oh. <laughs> I I resonate so much with your journey and just viewing health through a holistic lens because like there are so many things. Yes, nutrition is a huge modifying factor in anyone's health because again, we're kind of made up of what we digest and assimilate. Um, so of course it's understandable that the nutrition piece alone can be monumental in someone's mental, physical, and spiritual health, just by virtue of that fact. So I appreciate that. But then myself as well, I think for me, the nutrition piece was probably the first red pull that I took. Um, and then from there, also, I got into the sleep and the light and the movement and and the authenticity and the spiritual lens. Um, yes. So, yeah, I just commend you for the very important work that you're doing um, and just shining a light on just viewing the body through a holistic lens. And I think also empowering individuals that, you know, their diagnoses or diagnosis is not necessarily a death sentence. Um, That's that's something I'm pretty vocal about as well. And from what I'm hearing and gathering from you, there's so much like lifestyle intervention and practice that we can implement. Um, So yeah, just a huge, commending for you and all the work that you're doing yeah the wellness area is tricky um because there's there's so much there and there's so many folks that are you know unwell and and vulnerable to trying new things and overdoing things right um but you know i think we're on the same page because i think we probably both use wellness as a lever to improve our mental health, right? A, a, a mental health quality of life, which, um, yeah, I, I think people are starting to wake up to is that physical health and mental health are not as separate as people once seemed to think. 100%. I'm sure you're familiar with Dr. Daniel Amen. Yes. And I love his analogy, like the hardware software analogy, where he likens the body to the hardware and the psychology to the software. And you can't expect your software to be functioning if your hardware is a little bit malfunctioned. Um, And I also love how he I mean, he actually hates the term mental health. He prefers the term just brain health. Um, And again, when you view it through that lens and sort of reframe it, kind of like detaches the mysticism attached to mental health because I don't know if you have any thoughts on this because it's something that I you know growing up with mental health issues have always most I mean up until you know my nutrition journey I suppose I really did feel like this all like where did this all come from it just felt like confusing and like what's happening and I couldn't get any answers um so if you have any pearls of wisdom or opinions or thoughts on just the mysticism attached to mental health. Yeah, and I can appreciate why some people don't like that language um, because of, as you say, mysticism or stigma that's attached to it. Um, this concept of brain health has always caught my attention, um, and I appreciate Dr. Amen's perspective there. Um, I like understanding the underlying biology of what's going on, but I'm also very careful not to reduce things just to the biology, right? Because, you know, you're going to find situations where someone, for example, might not have the best eating patterns or, right, even have the best, you know, biological setup genetically but can have decent mental health because of their lived experience or the contextual factors. And, you know, you can also have people that are, you know, really healthy and take all their vitamins and do all the wellness stuff that we talked about and have challenges with mental health, right? So I I, I do think that mental health has to be bigger 
than just brain health because we are relational beings and human beings fit into the context of our immediate environment, our local environment, our community, and a lot of mental health is influenced by um, our perceived position in society, our, our senses of safety, and now, of course, with the rapid spread of information that we have using the internet, you know, a lot of people's mental health concerns are heightened. And yes, that does change the brain, right? And that's what I think uh, we would argue is that it, it all has the biological underpinnings. The biology is always there. But yeah, one of the things I learned about, you know, um, science when I, when I did my training uh, for my PhD was that there does tend to be people that think more biologically, like for example, a, a physician by definition, and then you have social scientists and sociologists that think about these things way differently. So it's always fun to pull from the different disciplines and kind of understand where people are converging and talking about the same things and then just smile and say, wow, these things are all true because they're just different people looking at it from different lenses. 100%. I think this is exactly why I wanted to have you on the show, because you really do sort of marry all the lenses to look at this in such a a tailored way. Um, and I think that was important to to pick out as well, because it's very easy to just speak about and say one point, but there's it's like it's not necessarily that it's either or. There's also an and, and most of the time it is an and because it can't just be also black and white. So I appreciate that. In my opinion, that's the biggest issue that we're facing in society today is the fear-based state where the amygdala is overactive and people are seeking safety and living in binaries and favoring the ors rather than the ands. I do believe that to be the major crux of a lot of our woes. Yeah, for sure. I think, I mean, the brain is kind of always wanting to make sense of things and it's a lot easier, you know, to just think of things as, like to reduce them to black and white, good, bad, but yeah. In we reality, all do it. <laughs> yeah. We all do yeah. it. No matter how smart we are, it is part of our, it's part of our biology. Exactly. Exactly. hundred yeah. percent. So moving I would love to, gosh, there are so many things that I want to cover here, but I think let's let's go into eating disorders specifically. That's obviously something very close to, the, I mean, my heart and one of the biggest reasons why I started this podcast, um, but also just prefacing that, I mean, to be honest, my experience of eating disorders has just been one of the most, like, just severe anxiety. Like, the eating disorder was kind of just like the manifestation of anxiety. So even though I have said specifically eating disorders, I do kind of want to just say that it kind of applies to mental, like mental health and just any struggles in general. Um, but yeah, I, I know that you have sort of published or co-published many articles in this, in the, and peer-reviewed articles. And I just, you know, just on high level, any tops like standouts for you in some of the research that you have done regarding, I suppose, anything, because you've covered many topics. I was looking at your yeah. <laughs> list. Yeah. So I think a lot of my scholarly efforts have been focused on addiction like eating. Uh, and it's a very controversial topic. And it is a perfect example of how you know, information can end up in silos and there's different camps that have differing points of view. F food addiction, for example, is very well accepted in the addiction community. In neuroscience and in psychiatry, there tends to be like a, a greater understanding of this phenomenon. Whereas food addiction in the space of uh, nutrition and psychology, some of the less uh, brain-based disciplines, right? Uh, there's a, a, not only has been a history of rejection, a, a lot of it has been vehemently opposed. So it's a perfect example of how, you know, someone like myself who likes to think in these gray areas 
and to think in uh, nuanced ways, tries to have this conversation of, well, what is it about this concept that is that you don't like? You know, where do we agree? Where do we disagree? And I think that one of the reasons why food addiction, what we now call ultra processed food addiction was so much opposed was because in the eating disorder community, we do see a lot of people that are driven mostly by restriction and restraint who uh, latch on to the concept of food addiction or say they have food addiction when in reality there might be some other drivers, right? So a lot of my work has been on integrating addiction neuroscience into the eating disorder climate in, in, and perhaps even um, you know, implementing some of that in a clinical setting um, as a way of understanding that um, all people with eating disorders shouldn't be lumped into one category. That the, the biggest disservice we've done is just even that phrase eating disorders and putting them all together, right, is silly. And the way that treatment centers are set up is that, you know, they say we treat eating disorders and, you know, there's different types of eating disorders, but, you know, in order to scale treatment, they sort of have to have a model and, you know, you have to have a food philosophy. So I've been very vocal about heterogeneity in the eating disorder space and very interested in some of the more atypical presentations of disordered eating. Um, you know, thinking about people with eating disorders that might be more rooted in trauma and early life adversity, perhaps some that have much more stronger genetic or biological underpinnings, you know, which may be true for you. Um, stuff that clusters and co-occurs with other mental health issues. Um, pretty sure that's almost always the case, but how important are these other quote unquote diagnoses? And what about people that have very strong reward-based behavior, hedonic behavior, we sometimes call it, um, and have patterns that are addiction-like based on the neurobiology? And then of course, what does it all mean when you're trying to put it into practice in the context of someone's current life? Like, what, what, how does it translate into uh, uh, clinical outcomes? How should we treat these people differently? And I think that's kind of where we're at now. I've spent a lot of years like kind of separating signals from noise and using psychiatric diagnoses to figure out, you know, what, what someone might cluster with or what their um, under, underlying um, drivers are. And now it's like, okay, now that we have this picture, you know, how are we gonna treat these people differently? And I'm able to do that because I do a one-on-one -on -one, uh, clinical practice. So it's easy for me to create very customized treatment trajectories for people, but it's just really hard to do it at an outpatient center or a residential center. And that's where I'm really trying to be helpful is doing some consulting work with treatment centers and saying like, here's ways to think more nuanced and more gray. Yeah, no, oh gosh, that's, uh, I was, I've been in and out of treatment centers. I was in and out of treatment centers for quite a long time. And oh, I felt like every time I went in, I just got worse. Um, sure. That was just, I mean, I'm not refuting anyone's or invalidating anyone's experience. I know I'm, I'm sure it's helped many, many people, yes. but I was just more and more traumatized. One of my biggest criticisms and again I'm not speaking from a moralizing point of view at all this is just my own end of one experience but my biggest criticism was the fact that like I mean specifically with anorexia uh it's it's very I'm, I don't want to say it's I'm not generalizing here but a big part of the anorexia is comparing um mm -hmm. and to be in a in an eating disordered unit along with more anorexics was almost worse. <laughs> it made us all like way more triggered, constantly yes. comparing. And it was almost like being in high school on steroids. Yes. Um, and that was one of my biggest criticisms. There was a point in one of my treatment centers, I actually was at a government hospital in, in Cape Town. And I was 
involuntarily admitted and I was in the general psych ward. But at that time, I was the only eating disordered patient. So every other patient in the ward had other, you know, they were there for other reasons. And that was that brief period where I was the only anorexic patient was probably the best period of my life because it kind of like took me out of like that space. And I, I was just, so many things were normalized for me. So it is a little bit, it's a difficult one because you do have to scale treatment, but at the same time, it's like you, it's almost like putting a whole bunch of addicts together. Sure. And that could go terribly because uh, people are now learning about new ways to use and plotting and planning and uh, whatnot. Um, But it could also like be the thing that's super healing for yeah. someone. And so I could imagine someone having your opposite story and being like, I was trying to recover on my own and it was awful. Exactly. And then when I ended up in a group of people that were just like me, I felt like I could breathe. And so it just goes to show how everyone is different. So different, so different. Um, and I think that's also something that I'm so appreciative of your work because just the bio-individuality of it all is so important because eating disorders are very very, very complex. Like, you know, they are often likened to addiction, as you know. Um, And I actually want to ask you, like, because, you know, at one treatment center, we actually had to go to, you know, AA meetings, NA, like all all the different anonymous meetings, even though I wasn't necessarily an alcoholic, I still had to attend. Um, And uh, I mean, it makes sense how they liken an eating disorder to an addiction, because it's like, it's just diffi- more difficult because you can't like just throw away the alcohol and the cigarettes and the drugs. You kind of still have to eat. Um, so, I mean, would you say that an eating disorder is an addiction? Um, great question. And we've been wrestling with this for many years and trying to t- tackle it in different ways. Um, not, not necessarily. Um, uh, as you might imagine, my answer is, well, it depends. Yeah. Um, but I do think that the reason why uh, 12 Steps seems to be uh, helpful is because of the spirituality that's inherently embedded into that movement. So I, 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 I sometimes think we assume that if, if, if a quote-unquote treatment works for different groups, then they have the same problem. Um, and, and I think it could be argued that a lot of mental and behavioral health challenges stem from a deeper longing at a a spiritual level, which is why, you know, 12 step way of life can work for people that don't have addictions or um, alcohol use disorder. So I've definitely seen people respond favorably to that. And I also know about some 12 step fellowships that are, um, you know, more popular in the eating disorder world that are less quote unquote rigid or abstinence based. Um, and I've seen people do well in, in those groups. Um, when you think about, you know, what is an addiction, you would have to think about, well, are we talking about, you know, a substance addiction or a behavioral addiction, what some people might call a process addiction. So yes, we could definitely argue that for some people with disordered eating, the uh, food, and usually it's the ultra-processed food, sometimes it's any food, just volume, can definitely have an addiction-like pathway. Um, and this, uh, this is you know, clear at the brain level, but also uh, more at the um, level of, of, of thought, cognitive processes. Sometimes we call it how much noise someone has in their head, right? Obsession is also a term we use. So, so yes, the evidence for a substance-related addiction process does exist. Some people would say that, uh, you know, some some folks are more addicted to the rituals as opposed to the process. I'm sorry, as opposed to the the products. It's more the process, right? So maybe it's not a food addiction, but a eating addiction, and uh, perhaps there are certain rituals that are very reinforcing that people are more drawn to and the food itself is less of uh, an issue or, you know, the famous debate, it's not about the food, but it is about the food, that sort of energy. 
Uh, it's going to vary from person to person. I tend to like the concept of food being addictive rather than the process, although I deeply understand the process. But there are other types of behaviors that can be very addiction-like. Um, most people know that uh, binging is addiction-like, but I think less people are attuned to this idea that maybe purging is also very reinforcing for some people in that uh, in some cases, the actual vomiting itself can be very self-soothing, especially if there's a trauma history. Um, we know that that uh, biological process can you know, soothe and improve vagal tone for some people. So uh, purging can become addicted. And then the argument that restriction can become addicting has been made and is certainly valid. And you know, if you think about why uh, anorexia nervosa can be so insidious is because the actual, um, you know, restrained eating or um, starvation, as some people might call it, or emptiness or control, wh whatever, you know, um, positively valenced experience exists for them goes along the reward pathway, right? Like the dopaminergic pathway does get reinforced as, um, someone learns a behavior and uh, basically overlearns it and repeats it and learns how to do it over and over again. So I do think that the neurobiological pathways of overlap between addictions and eating disorders is very clear and very robust. The reason why a lot of people don't would answer no to your question is because most people would argue that the treatment for eating disorders and the treatment for addictions clinically is very different, so they can't be the same. But I've made the argument in the last few minutes that the spiritual piece is important. And I do think that a lot of the clinical interventions are, are also overlapping and important. But there's a little bit of a war in, the, in between the addiction field and the eating disorder field. And I think it's safe to say that the addiction community is, feels highly marginalized by the eating disorder field people that work in substance use disorder, people that do research on food addiction have often reported, and you know myself included, that the eating disorder community systematically ignores and rejects a lot of these concepts because it doesn't fit well into their conceptual models. It doesn't work well with the set of assumptions that they bring to their research and to their clinic. And so there's definitely been a lot of opposition in this space and guess what that's where i land i'm sitting right there at the mo at the intersection where the opposition is and i'm saying whoa 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 let's talk about this and uh i just love uh taking these deep dives so thank you for that question yeah what are some of the eating disorder conceptualizations i'd be interested to know like the ones that you have you know referred yeah, to absolutely i think that the some of the main tenants of the mainstream eating disorder industrial complex <laughs> are that all loss of control eating, all binging, if you would, comes from restriction and restraint. I think that's the primary model that people use to um, conceptualize behavior patterns, is that if someone has any overeating, that it always comes from some uh, efforts to control eating prior, whether it be that day, the week before, or even yeah. 10 years before, yeah. right? Binge yeah. purge cycle. Yeah, yeah, and and some people, and it's true, some people can be like very restrictive from age you know, 19 to 25 and be successful in their restraint. And then fast forward, they're in their uh, late 30s, it's 15 years later, and they're experiencing loss of control eating and they can't, you know, manage it the same way. So someone like me, you know, we're going to kind of connect those dots. Maybe during those six years when you were underfed, your body made some adaptations mm -hmm. and it made some, it made some, you know, biological advances in, in the pursuit of survival that eventually came back and swung the other way. And now, 10, 15 years later, they're much more disinhibited around food. And it has to do 
with previous restrictions. So, mm. so that assumption is very prevalent in the eating disorder space, and it's not untrue. But I do think that there are a lot of cases where people have loss of control eating or other behavior patterns that doesn't always stem from the classic body image and diet culture uh, type of energy, mm -hmm. okay? And then the other assumption that's super prevalent in the eating disorder world that conflicts with the addiction space um, is that any form of rigidity is going to be more of a cause of an eating disorder rather than a solution. And, and I think it's safe to say that um, in mental health, rigidity is usually not a marker for you know great mental health, right? We tend to look at someone's ability to think more fluidly as a marker of good mental health or flexibly, I think is, a, is another good word. Um, so, I do, I do notice that in the eating disorder space, there is sort of an assumption that unless someone can reach a level of cognitive flexibility and then flexibility with food to where they're able to eat, you know, all things easily and in moderation, then they don't have recovery. Right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So that's the one, right? It's like yeah. this, this underlying assumption that the, the cupcake is the marker of recovery. And it's kind of like, okay, maybe the cupcake is the marker of recovery for half of this group. Maybe maybe uh, a percentage of the people really have fears around cupcakes that we need to work on and work through. But to assume that the cupcake is the marker of recovery for all people that have eating disorders across the board is one of the most s wildly silly assumptions that I've ever seen operationalized. And I've come across a lot of people that are like you that say, I was traumatized by eating disorder treatment and I'll never go back. Now, I'll say one other thing. I believe in food inclusivity. I've, I eat cupcakes with my patients at, at times, but I think you know the whole lumping them all together and saying, because this is true for this particular person with anorexia nervosa, this person over here that has a binge eating disorder needs the same message and the same treatment. And that's just that's just, you know, erroneous. Yeah, I, I'm really glad we're moving on to yeah, because this is something that I definitely wanted to discuss with you and definitely hear your professional thoughts. But I, in my whole recovery process, and also just taking recovery into my own hands, I suppose, I came across abstainers versus moderators. And I have come to learn that I pretty convinced that I'm an abstainer in that something like a carnival diet, which basically reduces my list of foods that I eat to animal products, salt and water. Um, I do have coffee and I do love coconut oil. So I do have those. But um, that was the most liberating thing for me. Um, the only thing that I can liken it to is decision fatigue. It just eliminated all of that for me. For me personally, as opposed to someone like my dad, who is an example of what I would say in the food space, a moderator. Like if I had um, <clears throat> like a cake in front of me or a box of chocolates in front of me, I would not stop at one as opposed to my dad. He would be able to have one and that's it. But me, I would it would turn into an absolute disaster. Now, is that something pathological am I broken is there something wrong with me or is this just how my brain is wired and I'm kind of asking this facetiously and also genuinely I would love to hear your thoughts on even just the concept of an abstainer versus a moderator yes and it's it's such an important and rich uh topic I I do believe that there are some people whose neurobiology is gonna necessitate the level of black and white uh, around certain things, even though, you know, inclusivity, moderation, and flexibility are probably more positive markers that some people don't have that brain chemistry, right? And that needs things to be more structured and more clear, right? And so I do honor that. And, um, you know, I would be very curious um, in, in your case, if the benefits of the carnivore diet came from, as you called it, 
the decision fatigue or from the 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 load, the cognitive load of the day-to-day decision-making processes, right? Like if the benefits come from just simplifying all the noise or if there are other biological underpinnings that make this particular way of eating, you know, very uh conducive to your positive mental health or it matches with your with your biology whether because of gut microbiota shifts that you had at some point in your life um, that that are in the process of acclimating toward a new homeostasis because of the and I, 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 I don't want to you know call carnivore extreme but I think most people would say it's a pretty extreme you know what I mean um, and I mean that in a positive way. Um, uh, for some people, we need extremes, right? Uh, um, but it could be genetic factors that you know have to do with your serotonin activity in your brain. You know, I remember seeing some research that suggested, you know, certain people with anorexia nervosa had too high of serotonin, and so by eating carbohydrates it actually took them even higher, which was a biological explanation for so much of the anxiety around carbohydrates, right? So, you know, in a contextual way, the eating disorder, um, you know, community might say, no, that's just body image. You you just want to be thin. That's why you don't want to eat the carbohydrates. And the person with anorexia nervosa is saying, no, 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 no. Actually, like when I eat it, it really makes me nervous and I feel really unwell, right? So, um, you know, to bring it back to you, when I hear about the carnivore diet being a solution for your long history with disordered eating, I become super curious to know, like, is there a large biological explanation for that? You know, either at the level of gut bacteria, uh, hormones in the endocrine system, or through uh, neurotransmitters and brain activity or through the immune system or through the nervous system, right? Is there a biological explanation for that? Or is it like you said, really just simplifying your life and removing all those decisions so you can start to streamline your processes and go move on with your life and do more important stuff, like have a podcast? <laughs> yeah, I think it's a combination of all those factors. I don't think it's it's just one, but I... Yeah, I mean, and this is another sort of paradigm shift that I think is slowly beginning to go there, especially with eating disorder recovery. But almost um, because, again, when I was in a treatment center, the food was there should be no fear food, junk food galore, all the things, which, yeah, on a just on a biological level, like if you're struggling with mental health issues all the glucose spikes in and of themselves, it's just a little bit of an a mess up for people and anxiety, et cetera, et cetera. And I kind of, you know, I'm grateful for the carnival diet. And I think also being in a ketogenic state is also very therapeutic um, for anything relating to brain health and just the body in general. So I think there's also that. And I know Dr. Chris Palmer is also doing amazing work in that regard. Um, but yeah, with carnival, I think but it also, firstly, again, it, it eliminated decision fatigue. It actually made me feel liberated and that it was the first time that I was actually wanting to eat food again. And I think also naturally, authentically, I grew up loving meat. <laughs> South Africa's got some really good meats. And I think naturally, that's just, I've always tended towards meat and fats. Um, but carnivore really helped me stabilize, like on a purely cellular physiological, brain health, all the things level. And from there, I was actually able to apply the 20 plus years of being in therapy prior. So that was an interesting, almost like reverse engineering again, somewhat relating to Dr. Daniel Amen's work, reverse engineering my mental health to the point where I stabilized my hardware, which needed to be stabilized. And in that regard, um, I was able to apply all the work and yeah, in my carnival, I've been carnival since 2018. And of course I've tried, you know, to incorporate some other things here and there. And each and every time I just, right now I'm just like, it's never made me feel good. Either it turned into a massive binge purge episode, which usually it did. um, Or I just genuinely felt 
not as good as I am predominantly eating mostly meat and fat. So that's where I'm at right now. I'm not saying I'm going to be like this forever, but it's like if I'm hungry, I kind of just want to have the piece of like another piece of meat because I don't really crave like a fruit or some salad. But yeah, I mean, it's interesting. <laughs> I think it's important. I think it's such an important testimony. Um, it really drives home all the points that I try to make, which need to be made, which is that we need to stop extrapolating, um, you know, across the board. Your your experience is so valid. And what's tricky about it, and this is kind of going back to the eating disorder field and the conflict, is that what you're describing as your recovery, as, as I'm listening to you, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling it. I'm like, I'm, yes, there's someone else out there that would call it being in the eating disorder, right? Yeah. And that's why it's like there's so much contention in, in the space because people are so married to one definition of recovery that you know, there isn't room for people to have their lived experience. And then someone like yourself might feel even unwelcome in the greater eating disorder conversation because there's someone out there that's going to, you know, point the finger. And it's just such a ugly time in, 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 our, in our world. And then it plays out in, in, in our field in a way that I, I think people need to wake up to. Um, I think it's fantastic that you found a path that works and are able to maximize your utility in this world. And I think, um, yeah, it, it should be shared. But then also remembering that there's going to be someone out there that probably should go on a different path that will be inclined to following the next, you know, the guru, right? Or the, right? And so if someone's listening out here, you know, don't don't follow my advice and my experience or or Kelsey's like collect information from all these different sources Do experiments with yourself and figure out what might be a good trajectory for me. And as Kelsey says, stay open minded to the possibility that that could change over time. And when you get signals from the universe that say, you know what, try something different, try something new. You should be able to listen to that so you could keep this health journey as an ongoing experiment with more questions than answers. Oh, I love that so much. And yeah, in the beginning of my carnival journey, everyone thought that I had an eating disorder. They're like, Kelsey, this is another eating disorder. Of and course. Of course. <laughs> um, I must say, like I up until speaking with you and hearing like how, your perspective on things, um, it firstly thank you because it validated me because I've been so torn like I've been because I've obviously you know keeping my hand in the eating disorder recovery space online for sure because it's a big part of my journey and I have been so ambiguous and almost scared about like where I stand like is this pathological like questioning like where is this coming from but actually genuinely you know like I think I need to own that it's gotten me to where I am. And again, I'm very open-minded and I'm not saying that this is going to be me forever, but right now it's it's keeping me alive. I'm healthier than I've ever yeah. been before, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But um, you can maybe briefly, because I know we're running out of time and I do want to get to just your app, which is amazing. But just going back to like, there should be no fear food. I also have gone... I've just oscillated between yes and no. And, I, we, you know, we have, like, sort of covered this about the cupcake, for example. But, like, where – and I know it's very nuanced, so you can't actually give a general, you know, sort of answer for anyone and everyone. But, you know, I do kind of want to push back at, like, there should be no fear food because most of the time it refers to junk food and ultra-processed food, which I think we can all agree is not necessarily the most healthy thing for our bodies anyway. Um and like I think eating junk food has become so common that choosing to eat healthy can also be considered an eating disorder. And I don't necessarily agree with that, but any comments about there should be no fear food, yeah. but yeah. Yeah, I do think that this term orthorexia nervosa is sort of being weaponized a bit, you know, to really target anyone who is interested in health, right? That any sort of inclination toward 
eating real food is now an eating disorder, right? That's a clear agenda that I think the big food corporations would like to get behind, right? To sort of, you know, just normalize whatever it is they're pushing and they're selling, right? For their bottom line. So, um, yeah, with respect to fear foods, um, you know, I do believe that some of these corporations generate foods for maximum palatability and for maximum profit with very little concern for human health. Um, and this is the systems that we live in of profit and, you know, capitalistic pursuits and investments from, you know, shareholders and fiduciary responsibilities to generate profit. Like it's part of this machine that we live in. And I'm not necessarily against that model, but it's important to think about how health can be spent in that model. So yeah, if, if just because some corporation is creating a food for reasons of profit does not mean that we need to include it necessarily. But I will say that fear is not a generally positive emotional state and it very much compromises someone's ability to be logical. So if the amygdala activity is uh, uh, overactive, it's going to make it difficult for the prefrontal cortex to, you know, really weigh pros and cons in a rational and logical fashion. So if someone is moving through life with a heightened sense of fear and threat vigilance, right, and you're sort of going through life with an antenna that's reminding you that you're not safe and everywhere you look there's food and it activates negative emotionality that is not good for mental health right so it's it's pretty obvious that you know when you use the term fear food like we, you could focus on the food or you could focus on the fear right so yeah just because something is created and it has you know red dye 40 pink colored you know, color uh, whipped cream on the cupcake, right? Um, that could invoke a lot of fear for someone. Um, but I, I do think that it would, there is a way to get to a place where you can be more neutral to it. However, if someone has a, an eating disorder and they have had a lot of experiences being in it, right? Like if that food was an actual binge purge food, right? It has much more salience to that person and it's attached to much deeper emotionality. Um, the same way someone that did crystal meth for a decade, you know, might have an emotional response to a, a, a meth pipe. You know what I mean? Like s someone that was an IV drug user is going to have reactions to syringes that people who never shot up drugs aren't going to have, right? So if someone has had a lot of low spots and a lot of traumatic experiences around that cupcake is our example, um, yeah, it makes sense that it would be a fear food because it's bringing up a lot of dark moments, right? It's like, no, that that's the food that led me to binge and purge that night that I ended up getting 10 of them and eating them out of the trash can and blood came up, right? Like, all of that is now attached to the cupcake and it would make sense to do some healing work, have some abstinence and to be able to move through life without that intense fear around the cupcake, whether that be exposure therapy or just spirituality. For some people, the only way to get over the fear is to eat it and to do so in a therapeutic environment. And for other people, the way to get through the fear is to be able to learn how to be neutral to it and decide that it's not my food and not something that I engage with, but still be able to go into a coffee shop and order a coffee and not be at the counter sucking in the, in the glass, getting sucked into the muffin or the cupcake, right? So yeah, uh, it's tricky. I don't, I don't believe that everyone needs to include the food in order to be in recovery, um, but I do know that fear is a state that is not conducive to healing. And so, yeah, there are different ways to work through fear and abstinence is one of them. That was very powerful. And I cannot wait to go back and listen to that again and just take notes because 
yeah, it's, it was so nuanced and so accurate on so many levels. Thank you. Thank you for that. Um, before we get to near the end of the podcast, please, can you share with us this amazing work that you're doing with your app? Yes. So I created a mental health app based on nutrition and lifestyle medicine. It's called Wise Mind Nutrition, and that's three words. And it really generated from my interest in um, nuance and not falling under uh, camps or specific food philosophies. So I do come from the eating disorder world, which which means that I'm very sensitive to um, language that we use around food and around body. But I'm also attuned to the fact that there are people that have addiction-like relationships with food, people that have depression, anxiety, PTSD, that have ADHD, that need to learn how to take care of their gut and need to learn new behaviors around food. So I've merged these different worlds of kind of classic eating disorder recovery energy with intentional eating for brain health. Right. So, you know, why is my nutrition is eat food for mood and brain health, but it's packaged in a way that's safe and non-diet. Um, and so it isn't a program where people are told what to do. It's a program where people are empowered to kind of build their own path. And so I teach these concepts that we've talked about today about nuance and I teach about nutrition but everything is packaged in a, I want you to do you, build your own nutritional identity, you create your own plan. So there is a program that has personalized messages based on mental health scores. There are videos with uh, assignments and links that people can do to move through a process. Uh, there's 43 modules in there and they're you know best done day by day. Um, of course, you can take your time and use as, as much time as you need um, to move through the full program. But the uh, outcome is that you'll be able to see how your mental health may have changed or improved from the beginning to the end. So a lot of nutrition apps track, you know, calories and macros. I'm, I'm tracking anxiety and depression uh, based on, you know, nutrition and lifestyle medicine. So there's a program and there's a food log. A lot of people in the eating disorder world are familiar with recovery record, try to make a food log better than all the other recovery apps out there. So there's a way to log food qualitatively, not quantitatively. So not so much emphasis on the numbers and more emphasis on um, food groups, hunger, fullness scale, et cetera. And then um, there's a place where people can set their own intentions, do a nightly review look back at your day and see what you did well, what you could have done better and set some intentions for the next day. So it's a day-to-day -day recovery program for people. And then there's a connection feature where clinicians, coaches, uh, friends, family can follow each other in a anonymous way and provide support. So for example, you could get a bunch of people that are on a recovery path that all follow each other and look at their nightly reviews and can provide support to each other, but of course, it is designed to use for people that do one-on-one -on -one work to be able to follow uh, our clients. So I follow all of my patients on the Wise Mind Nutrition app. Um, I actually started logging a little bit of food myself and having some of my people follow me back. So some people can get some inspiration uh, for eating food for mood and brain health, get a sense of what you know colors and balance uh, can look like. Um, so it's super exciting. We're building a community of people who want to drop out of diet culture, but also don't buy into the mainstream eating disorder narrative um, and, you know, want to use nutrition to improve uh, the broader domain of mental health quality of life. And, uh, you know, there's a, a, a lot of people that have st started the program and finished the program. It's all very new that are already so excited about it that are building this into their like toolkit for a practice, right? So technically someone who's a coach could come in and learn the program and then start to use the app with their clients as a way of providing support. And I built it for mental health professionals, um, therapists and psychiatrists, psychologists to, to use with their clients so that they wouldn't have to feel like they had to refer to a dietitian 
if if the person can't afford it or if there isn't uh, one nearby, they can get all of my resources, the equivalent of working with me, you know, for something like twenty nine dollars. Just so much yes to all of this. I'm definitely going to look into this app for myself and then also for, you know, people that I work with. This is, oh, wow. Um, before I ask you your last question, where can people find you, follow you, and also download this app? Yes, the app is called Wise Mind Nutrition. It is in the Apple App Store. I am very confident that by the time this podcast comes out, we'll be in the Google Play as well. The Android version has taken a few months, uh, <laughs> was more challenging than I expected. The website is wisemindnutrition.com. There's about 80 plus blogs there at the intersection of nutrition and mental health. And I have Wise Mind Nutrition on uh, Instagram, YouTube, and TikTok. I'm really trying to uh, step my TikTok game up. So uh, appreciate any activity over there. Uh, my personal Instagram is Dr. David Wiss, and I do more broad stuff, share about family and friends a bit there. Uh, but Wise Mind Nutrition is the app. My clinical practice, I've been forgetting to say this, I have been in practice for 11 years is different than the tech company, which is Wise My Nutrition. My practice is called Nutrition in Recovery, um, and that's nutritioninrecovery.com, where you can learn about this eating disorder, addiction, intersection space, and work with me one-on-one. Uh, -on -one. I'm very happy to answer questions that people have about the Nutrition for Mental Health movement, and let's all be a part of the change that we need to see. 100%. Oh my gosh, this is amazing, amazing, amazing work. Um, now for your last question, if you were made the president, what is the first thing you would do or policy you would change or policy you would create? Great <laughs> question. And, you know, there's definitely a voice right now um, out there who has caught my attention. Um, you know, it's tricky when you when you ask about presidency. Now you're opening up this whole world of politics and whatnot. <laughs> um, but I am very much interested in um, reducing corporate power um, and really um, in the specifically in the domain of health. I think corporations are going to always have power, but it, here in the United States, it's very obvious to many of us that. You know, the regulatory agencies have been captured by corporate interests and that, you know, information that trickles down through the nutrition and mental health space is biased information that has uh, profit based agendas. And so I do have a vision for health and health care that involves uh, greater access and health equity and most importantly, you know, truth and the removal of conflicts of interest. So that's where my passion is right now in um, really being able to separate uh, private profits from public health. And this is very important in the nutrition space because a lot of people are unwell and uh, still not able to see how much nutrition has to do with that. Yeah, oh my gosh, wow. You're preaching to the choir and just thank you for all of this amazing work that you're doing. And I'm so glad that you are alive in this lifetime because, yeah. <laughs> so important so important thank you and thank you for your time you're so welcome thank you these are the important conversations that we need to be having in order to bring about a revolution of health and the work that dr david is doing is the work that is needed in order to bring about this revolution of health no one was born to suffer and the body has an innate ability to heal itself when put in the right environment to do so so please share this far and wide if you know of anyone who would benefit from listening to this episode, please share, share, share. Sharing, liking, subscribing, and giving a rating and review are the lifelines of any podcast and really help grow the show and make it more accessible to more people. I'd like to remind you of your special 10% discount on any Oxford HealthSpan product. Oxford HealthSpan are doing important work in bringing to the market high-quality, effective, bioavailable and science-backed botanical compounds that harness the body's innate ability to repair, renew and promote vigorous longevity and increased health span. I interviewed the founder, Leslie Kenny, on episode 6. I highly recommend you give it a listen if you haven't yet done so. So, when you enter Kelsey... 
K-E-L-S-E-Y, all in capitals, as a discount code at checkout, you will receive a 10% discount. A link will be in the show notes. Another exciting announcement is that I have teamed up with Nutrition Network. Nutrition Network is an online accredited education, connection, and learning platform founded by the Noakes Foundation in partnership with an esteemed team of doctors and scientists. The platform has been designed exclusively for healthcare practitioners across all disciplines, covering the latest and most up-to-date science and research in the field of low-carb nutrition. As a Nutrition Network nutritional advisor and ambassador, you can enroll in any of their incredible courses using the special link in the show notes provided. If you are a medical professional or someone just interested and you want to enhance your practice and life, actively be on the pulse with all the latest research, be involved in an international community and be lectured by the world's leading doctors, coaches and researchers in the field of nutrition, look no further. A link will be in the show notes. And until next time, stay safe, stay real. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Human Theatre. I hope you learned something new. Don't forget to like, subscribe, share and give a rating or a review on whatever app you are listening to this podcast on. I would love to hear your feedback, so please don't hesitate to reach out on Instagram or via email. All the links are in the show notes. Remember, you are your most important person in this world. Keep shining your unique light. Until next time.